As you open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11. So we continue our study in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. It's on page 1192 in the Pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 11. And any children here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to children's church if they wish. Which you can find through the door over here by the piano. Hebrews chapter 11. As Seth said, just a reminder, our annual business meeting is uh, not, actually not this Tuesday, but Tuesday after that, uh, Tuesday, June 9th. All right, Hebrews chapter 11. For those of you just joining us this Sunday, uh, we're working our way through Hebrews chapter 11, which is one of the more famous uh, chapters in the New Testament because it, it's a very vivid description of what it means to live as a person of faith. You know, what does it mean to have faith? What does that look like? So Hebrews 11 is, is sort of one of those beloved chapters in the Bible because it takes us on kind of a guided tour through some of the Old Testament characters and showing us through them different facets of what it means to have faith. So if you were here two weeks ago, we started Hebrews 11 and we saw that it's by faith that we're able to know that God is real and that He created the universe. Faith gives us a certain knowledge. And then uh, last Sunday we looked at the stories in Hebrews 11, uh, 4-6 about Cain and Abel and Enoch. And we saw that it's by faith that we're able to please God. And without faith you can't please God or make Him happy. That's the most fundamental thing is coming to Him by faith. Well, today we come to another one of those great Old Testament heroes. One that probably a lot of people have heard of, even those who maybe don't feel that familiar with the Bible. We come to the story of Noah. You know, Noah is, is one of these well-known stories. The guy who built the huge boat and had all the animals come into it and survived the flood. And Noah teaches us that by faith, God's people are able to live godly lives in an ungodly culture. That's what Noah has to teach us. That God's people can live godly lives in an ungodly culture. That followers of Jesus Christ can be empowered to persevere with Christ in a Christ-denying, Christ-rejecting, Christ-belittling culture. Um, and as Christians, that can be hard. You know, as followers of Christ, sometimes we, we feel like the whole world is going this way and we're trying our hardest to go that way. We feel like those those herring here in the spring that swim up the brooks. And if you've seen the herring runs here in Massachusetts, we saw one just a couple uh, months ago. My family was down in Plymouth. And you know the little stream that runs through the center of Plymouth? We were sort of taking a walk down that with our kids. And there were the herring swimming upstream. And you see these little fish, you know, just kicking as hard as, or whatever, the guess not legs, whatever they do, you know, <laughs> wagging their tails, swimming up the stream. And they don't go anywhere, you know. Everyone's told maybe they make it a little bit, then they come back. And you think, how is that fish ever going to make it up to the pond? I mean, it, it just baffles. Uh, you know, how does it ever happen? How does everyone get up there to spawn? And sometimes we feel like that as Christians. Like, how do we have the gusto and, and the chutzpah to keep going against the current of our culture? You know, sometimes we look at the political landscape around us, the kinds of laws that get put into place that are the law of the land, but are just like so contrary to God's laws. Or, or we look at the things coming at us from media and television that are just godless, you know, garbage sometimes. Or even a more personal level, the, the talk that takes place around the water cooler. 
or the conversations at the bus stop with the other parents, or at the lunchroom table, or in the locker room. And, and you know, you hear the, the kinds of jokes that are told and the kinds of values that are being purported, and you just think, I don't even know what to say. This is so opposite of where I'm going that I feel just out of place. I, I feel like I'm that fish, you know, and I'm not getting anywhere. So how do you find the strength to keep swimming, to keep living as a godly person who's seeking the Lord, albeit imperfectly, in a godless culture. And what we see in the life of Noah is that we persevere by faith. It was faith that kept Noah going in the face of seemingly overwhelming odds. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Here we have just kind of like a a super brief synopsis of the Noah story. We see that Noah was a man who was warned about the coming judgment, warned about that he could not see, warned that there was going to be a flood. He responded in holy fear by building an ark. And in so doing, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness. So three things that he did by faith. Built an ark, condemned the world, became an heir of righteousness. I think to really appreciate this, we ought to go back and read some of the original Noah story. So let's do that. Let's put a bookmark here in Hebrews 11 and go back to Genesis, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6. And let's read the original Noah story, Genesis 6-5. One of the reasons we're taking our time through Hebrews 11 a bit is because it affords us the leisure of really uh, kind of drilling down into some of these Old Testament stories and and learning some of the basic narrative of one of the most important books, the most important book in the world. So Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So here we have God looking down on the world, and it's become corrupt with sin. Last Sunday we studied Cain and Abel. If you were here, you remember that? Cain and Abel were the, the first children of Adam and Eve. And we see the very first children of Adam and Eve, and what happens? They fight, and they, one of them kills the other one. I mean, no sooner do they set foot out of the Garden of Eden than violence and evil enters into the world. And as people spread, evil spreads. As people propagate themselves across the earth, sin and corruption propagates itself. Wherever people go, there are wonderful achievements and there's always uh, corruption and sin going hand in hand with that. We are in the image of God, but we are fallen and both of those realities are there. You see, sin and corruption and evil and moral decay are not modern problems. They are human problems. And this is every human culture all across uh, time. There is a moral deficiency within us. We have a sin nature. It's part of our spiritual DNA. It's sort of coded into our souls. That no matter where we are or what we're doing or what age we're living in, whether it's Cain and Abel or it's 
the 21st century in America, we have this propensity towards sin and selfishness. As it says here in Genesis 6, that the inclinations and thoughts of the heart was only evil all the time. And so finally, God says, enough. I've had enough. You know, I've been patient. I've waited. I've reached out. But I can't let this go on forever because God is good. God can't tolerate evil ad infinitum. And so God finally says, enough. I am going to judge the world. I'm going to eradicate mankind. And yet, in his judgment, there is mercy. There is hope. Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I love that line. But Noah found favor. You could translate it, Noah found grace. Noah found kindness. God had mercy, even in the midst of his justified judgment against the world. So we get the story of Noah and God's grace to him. It says in verse 9, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So here we have Noah. While the rest of the world is getting worse and worse, Noah, by faith, is seeking God. And as Noah walks with God by faith, God's grace enables him to become more godly, more righteous. God is, is the one making Noah righteous. It's not like Noah was just off being righteous. And then when God, one day God said, well, that's a pretty good guy, I'll take him. No, no. He was seeking God by faith and it was God's grace in his life enabling him to live this righteous and holy life. And then verse 11, we have this repetition of, of the corruption of the earth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. There's that word, corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. You know, it, that's such a great word. It, it sort of implies kind of a decay. You know, the fruit is rotten. The hard drive is overrun with viruses. It's corrupt. And, and there comes a point, you know, and I've had this experience talking to the tech people over the phone, you know, what am I going to do with my hard drive? And they go, you know, you just have to wipe it out. I hope you back things up because to save your hard drive, we have to eradicate it in order to, dis to clean it. And there comes a point where things get so bad that the only thing you can do is wipe the slate clean and start over. And so God says, that's it. The world is so corrupt. Now, the, maybe the people on earth didn't think they were corrupt, but we're not talking about human judgment here. We're talking about God's perspective. It says, in God's sight, the earth was corrupt. So based upon God's standards, not our relativistic human standards, which always happen to work out well for us, you know, in God's standards... God says the earth is corrupt. So, verse 13, God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. The judgment is coming. So, make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's a huge boat. That's not like some hobby sailboat you build in your garage. I mean, this, this is monstrous. This is going to take years. You know, Noah can't do this on weekends. I mean, this is going to take, like, Noah's life to build this vast ship. Verse 16, make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Here's why. Why should you build this big boat? Well, this is what God's going to do. Verse 17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy 
all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Or to put it another way, God is going to decreate the creation. You have all this creation language reversed. So, for instance, back up in verse 7. God is going to take from the face of the earth men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air. Again, it's all this Genesis 1 creation language. So it's, maybe it's another way to think about God's judgment. God's judgment is decreating the world. So God creates, and then when He judges, He decreates. And when He saves, He recreates. So God says, I'm going to decreate the world. I'm going to wipe the hard drive clean. But then I'm going to recreate. And the recreation is promised in verse 18. He says, I will establish my covenant with you and you you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to make a promise of salvation. Even as I'm expressing my judgment, the other side of that is I'm going to promise to save and to recreate something new. And so, because God's going to, in a sense, recreate the world through Noah... He tells them to bring a bunch of animals on this boat. That's why the boat has to be so big. Verse 19, you're to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, so they can repopulate the earth to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah obeyed God's word. Now, if I could just sort of make a little side comment here. I realize that for, for many modern people, it's stories like this that make the Bible hard to swallow at times. You know, people who are modern, scientific, rationally minded. You, you read a story like that, you're like, Did, really? That, that really happened? I mean, it kind of sounds sort of like a, a myth or, or something like that. You know, the, the, the boat and the animals came in and how the animals get there and all the water... In fact, um, sometimes we as Christians have periods of doubt. I don't know if you've ever struggled with doubt as a Christian. Uh, at different times of different doubts I've wrestled with throughout my Christian life, I, I, you know, sort of honest confessions here, this is one of those stories that kind of just gave me a hiccup in terms of, on the one hand, I believe the Bible, on the other hand, I'm like, how did this happen? You know, like, where did all the animals come from? How did they get there? How did they keep peace in the ark with, you know, the lions and the wildebeest, like in the same place? And where did all the water come from? How did all that water get on the earth? And where did all that water go when it was over? And you know, so I just had all these questions. And so I prayed about it. It was just one of those, those things. I, just, I wrestled with some. But I finally came to a resolution on it. And I think I can explain it to you logically. I think I understand how this whole thing worked. So let me give you my explanation. It was a miracle. <laughs> That's the explanation. The supernatural intervention of God. I was like, oh. I don't know, maybe you're like, duh, but I don't know, for some reason it took me a while to get there. And you go, oh, well, that doesn't solve anything because miracles are illogical and, and irrational. No. Miracles are illogical and irrational if you presuppose by faith that there is no God. If there is a God who created the universe, then the universe is a miracle. So why, if there is a God, would it be impossible for that God to reverse what he did? I mean, it's not irrational if you understand that there's a God. And if you say there isn't a God, you just please understand that you have made a faith step. Atheism is a faith-based worldview. You can't prove it. 
You have to take it on faith. But if you see by God's grace that God is real and He made the universe, you're like, yeah, God made the world. And wow, God could choose to end the world just as dramatically and supernaturally as He created it. So Noah, hearing of this coming judgment that God was going to bring about, obeyed God. He trusted God. When there was not yet a cloud in the sky, so to speak, Noah obeyed God and built this boat. So let's go back to Hebrews 11 now. Verse 7. And see if it doesn't make a lot more sense. It says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in other words, the flood, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. So Noah feared God, and he believed God's promises. When, as I said, there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. He believed that God was going to flood the world and decided to build this boat and fear God rather than fear man. You know, and It must have been... I mean, just try to imagine this scenario. And whenever people have done sort of movies or stories depicting Noah in some way or another, you know, there's always, this is part of the story, is, is trying to imagine what it must have been like to be building a boat for, you know... There's no flood and there's no water and it's building this enormous boat. Like, Noah, what are you doing? I'm building a boat. Well, yeah, but why are you building the boat, Noah? Because God's going to flood the earth. Okay. <laughs> Great, Noah. Good luck with that. And like, Really? You're building a boat? What do you mean God's going to flood the earth? How do you know that? God told me. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, you know, he's just, you know, I can just imagine year after year this oddball who keeps building this boat because God told him he's going to flood the earth. You know, I mean, that is, talk about swimming against the current and feeling like a fish going up the stream. But, you know, you kind of get the sense that going against the current wasn't new for Noah at this point because we've already been told that he was a righteous, blameless man who walked with God. So by faith, he had already been practicing obedience in a culture that we're told in Genesis was becoming more and more corrupt and, and that evil was becoming more entrenched and normalized. Noah was one of these few guys, in fact, it looks like in, in Genesis, that had come to the point where he was the only guy who was walking by faith. That's what it appears. There's one guy in his family that's walking by faith on the earth. And it's Noah, and he's swimming alone. So Noah is, is used to it. This is, he's, he's gotten accustomed to living by faith. And now when God says, we'll build a boat, it's like, well, might as well. I mean, I've been living for God as the only guy for so long anyway. So here's Noah. He's building this ark. And I love what it says in the second half of verse 7. It says, By faith he condemned the world. By his faith he condemned the world. Isn't that a fascinating concept? Condemning the world by faith. So just by being faithful to build the boat, and just by living the way God wanted him to live, by grace, by faith, Noah was simply by existing, condemning the world. Just by living a life of faith. There was a message of judgment going out to the world. He didn't have to even say anything. There's a a Jewish tradition um, from the the first century around that time period in Jewish writings that often described Noah as a a great preacher of repentance. But it seems here that whether or not he was or wasn't, all he had to do was just build the boat and obey God. And his life was a living message of, of condemnation to the world, telling the world that God is holding us accountable. We can't just go on the way we are and think that God will never care. 
You know, it's not a deistic universe where God just winds it up, creates it, sets it in motion, and then goes off. God is alive and active, and He holds us accountable for our lives and our actions. And someday we'll have to give an account for those. And Noah says, that day is really close, and I'm building a boat because it's so close. And then look what else it says about Noah. He became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was proclaimed righteous, not because of what he had done per se, but because of his faith. Faith lays hold of God's righteousness, and it's God's righteousness that we receive by faith that works itself out in us. And so when the world was judged and condemned, Noah was saved and acquitted because he had received God's righteousness by faith. So how do we live as godly people in an ungodly world? And Noah gives us a model. It is by faith in the promises of God. And you know, brothers and sisters, just as God warned Noah of a coming judgment, God has warned us of an even greater coming judgment. We have an even greater warning than Noah had. Our Lord Jesus Himself repeatedly warned that He was coming back. That Jesus, who was crucified, buried, raised, who right in this moment is exalted in glory at God's right hand, that Jesus is coming back. And He's not coming back as cute Christmas baby. He's coming back as the warrior king and judge on the white stallion. And we have this warning from God. And so in, I was, as I thought more about this Noah story, I thought, you know, we are so much like Noah, even more perhaps than we realize. that There is a great day of judgment coming. There is a great assize. God is coming to hold us accountable. Christ is returning. And we have been warned in advance. We have been warned repeatedly. Let me show you one passage. There's so many texts we could look at about the coming judgment. But look at, look at just one. Uh, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. I find it interesting because 2 Peter 3 uses Noah language. It refers back to Noah's story. It's on page uh, 1205. It's just a few pages after, after Hebrews. Noah was warned. We have been warned. Let me just kind of walk us through 2 Peter 3 really quickly. Page 1205. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter writes, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. 1 Peter, 2 Peter. He says, I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through the apostles. So let's just remember what God has told us about this warning. Let's remember this warning that God has given. The prophets spoke about it. Jesus talked about it. The apostles talked about it. What's the warning? Verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You know, what is this second coming in this judgment day? It's not going to happen. Everything's the same. The world just goes on. You know, it's like in Noah's day. Noah, how long have you been building that boat? 
I remember you started that boat. It was when my kid here was in preschool. And now he just graduated from college. You're still pounding on the boat. Where's the flood, Noah? And Okay, yeah, it's coming. Uh-huh. Well, when's Jesus coming back? It's only been 2,000 years. You know, the world's going on. It's just, it's just legend. It's myth. It's ancient history. And Peter warned us about that. And this was written in the very time when Christ had been ministering. And he says, look, people are going to say that. Just know ahead of time. Verse 5, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So there's the flood. So we have the decreation. We have the reverting. You know, when God makes the earth, he, he brings the earth out of the dry land. And then in the decreation, he brings the water back over the earth. So it's kind of a, re- a return to the primordial chaos. And God says, I'm going to decreate the world in judgment. And he uses the Noah language. Then in verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So, so if we can kind of get our minds around this, what he's saying here is that, the, in a sense, he's saying that the judgment in Noah's day was a small prefigurement of the coming judgment, which is rather chilling. That that in Noah's day, the earth was destroyed. In the coming return of Christ, it says the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. In Noah's day, it was water. But in the second coming, an ark of wood will not protect us because it's fire. It's even worse. It's a greater, more intense judgment of God. Verse 8, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. Well, two days, whatever. <laughs> In God's sight, it's all the same. And that, that was written 2,000 years ago. It's like they knew we were going to be waiting. So he just wanted to warn us. You know, God's timetable is way different from ours. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. There is coming a day where Christ will once again stand up and say, Enough! Enough! I've used this illustration before, but it's just so vivid to me. Whenever I think about that day, I think about that painting in the Sistine Chapel where you see God the Father there and Jesus is on the throne and finally Jesus is standing up in judgment. And you see in the painting Mary sitting next to him and she has her head turned away with her hand covering her face, terrified to see the sun rising in judgment where Christ finally says, Enough! Enough! And it's time. And I realize too, again, this is another concept that modern, we modern people struggle with because the, the conventional wisdom today very much, very much is that God would never judge anybody. Except maybe like really, 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 really bad people like Saddam Hussein, you know, or Osama bin Laden. Okay, yeah, maybe him, right? But everyone else is, is good. And the conventional wisdom today is that God doesn't judge. God is a God of kindness. God is a God of love. He's a God of tolerance. He would never do that to anyone. We, we've almost made God sort of a, a, a grandfather figure. You know, the kind of grandfathers, like their, their, his grandchildren can do no wrong. 
no matter what happens, it's, oh, it's okay. Here's some candy. I got candy in my pocket, you know. Oh, that's okay. Here's some candy, you know. Here's five bucks. There you go. You know, it's like, and that's God. Like, no matter what happens, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Oh, we're just having fun here. Like, and we have this, this idea that that's how God is. Is God loving and kind and patient? Of course. He's given us 2,000 years. He's extremely kind and loving and patient. But he's also holy and just and righteous. And there comes a point where he says, enough, and he judges the world. I mean, what makes us think that this world that we live in is really going to escape the judgment of God? I mean, this world has become corrupt. You know? Just think about our nation. We have legalized in our nation the murder of a million unborn human people every year. I mean, it's, it's vastly, radically evil. You know, and you say, well, it's, it's, it's a woman's right. What about the 500,000 women who don't even get to make a choice because they don't see the light of day? What about that? What has happened to marriage in our nation and the way it's being corrupted and perverted? What about you know, the Internet? Just looking at examples of human corruption. Wherever human beings create technology, it always amplifies potential good, but also amplifies our evil and corruption. You, know, you look at the Internet. Like what's one of the main applications of the Internet today? It's pornography. The degradation of people's souls, the degradation of women, the degradation of the beauty of sexuality that God created, and it, all the just corrupted. What about the, they don't even know how many, but they're estimating 600 to 800,000 people a year being trafficked as slaves across international boundaries every year. And it, it, they, they're guessing, right? They, they guess that about 70% of those are women the 50% of those are children, the majority going into the sex industry. That's our world that we live in. What about the millions of street children in our urbans, urban centers around the world? What about them? Why, how can they just continue to live on the streets? I mean, what is wrong with us? And I mean, we could go on. We could talk about corruption in government from small governments all the way up to the UN. We could talk about atrocities and abuses of human rights and we could talk about, um, you know, genocides and wars. And you just look at this world. It's like the world is just sick. It is sick with sin. And, you know, we really think that God is God because he's good. is just going to be like, oh, that's okay. Just keep going. <laughs> he's good. That's why he will judge. Because someone good could not let that go on forever. Someone good could not turn a blind eye to that forever. And so God in his patience is good. He will judge. And it's not just the world is sick. You know, I am sick with sin. We are sick. And maybe I haven't had a hand in genocide or, or something like that. But, you know, I look in my heart and I just see selfishness and pride and entitlement and self-righteousness and arrogance. You know, God is tuning, the, the, tuning my heart looking for the praise like a radio dial. Looking, listening for the praise, and all I hear is a static. You know, where's my heart worshiping God? You know, every so often, you know, the, the praise will come out. But my heart, at the very, my core level, I was talking to a woman this morning after the 8:30 service who was just talking about how 
as she's become a Christian recently, she realizes, you know, my heart is far more bent and corrupt than I had ever realized. I always thought I was fine. Then I came to Christ and I'm realizing it's a lot deeper than I had possibly imagined. It just, that's what you find out as a Christian. Just how much we need the Savior. It's not like you become a Christian and you're fine. It's like you become a Christian and you realize how much more you need the Savior than you ever realized you knew you need the Savior. It's so deep within us. And we think that God is just going to, to just say, okay, you know. And then we, then we get religious, right? But we're not religious anymore. We're spiritual. You know, it's, like, it's a step above religion. We're spiritual. We're so religious and spiritual that we make up our own religion. That's what spirituality is. It's make up your own religion. It's like, here's the buffet, here's the plate. Let's see, I like that from Christianity. Oh, I don't like that, but the judgment thing here. Oh, Buddhism, that's nice. Okay, and, you know, as if like God and faith were something we could create, like a Facebook page. I mean, that is, is that not the height of hubris? Where is the fear of God in the world? Or as Jesus said, will the Son of Man find any faith on the earth? Where is the fear of God in the world? No, there is coming a day of judgment. We may deceive ourselves all we want, but it will matter not. So, verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the question of the hour. So what? How should it make us live? We get two answers. One, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And two, speed its coming. So number one, we have to live holy and godly lives, which makes total sense, doesn't it? If God is judging the world for its evil, we need to live holy lives. But as we said, holiness is not something we can achieve on our own. We're so broken that even getting religious or getting spiritual doesn't work. We need to come to God and say, God, I cannot change myself. I cannot fix myself. I can't make myself be the way you want me to be. I need your grace to impart your power and your righteousness to me. It's a place of dependency upon the grace of God, not a call to self-righteous religiosity. And God can do it. That's the great news, is that no matter who we are, no matter what our past is, no matter what our addictions are, no matter what our brokenness is, God has the power to recreate something new inside of you and me that doesn't exist there on its own. By God's power, we can become new people in Christ. I, uh, there was a guy who, um, he started going to our church several years ago, just started going and then made some bad decisions and uh, is now serving time in prison. But he and I have kind of kept up a loose correspondence and, and since being in prison, he's really come to find Christ and appears to be growing in Christ from, what, from everything I can tell. Um, let, let me just, he just wrote me a, a letter recently. We kind of correspond. Let me just read you this paragraph. It's just so amazing. He says, I've been so very blessed by this time in prison. I know that may sound like an oxymoron to some, but God has truly had his hand in this since the day I first came in and was broken. I try to tell new Christians here, it is not about what we do, but what we allow God to do. Surrender is the key. Once I surrender this mess, then God reigns in my life and I can follow and know His will for me. It's funny because I see and read about what's going on out there where we are. And people are in worse prisons than me. And they're not even locked up physically. Sin by nature is an enslaver. 
And if I can find freedom locked up behind the wall, then I know those people out there incarcerated by their own transgressions need to hear the truth. That's amazing. I was really blown away by that. You know, God's power can change us. God is the one who can make us new. And so that's what we ought to do. First and foremost, we need to come to God and say, God, I need you to change my life. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I need you to save me and transform me. And then look at the second phrase in First Peter, uh, 3, 2 Peter 3.12. It says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And they get this phrase. It's interesting. And speed its coming. So we speed the coming of the day of God. Like, how do you speed it? I mean, kind of a funny thought, huh? And, and I think the idea here is, is that by living for God and, and serving Him, we are doing those things that God has sort of set in motion to bring about His day. Or, or to put it in Genesis terms, we've got to build the ark. We've got to get out there and get the ark done. It's not just living a godly life, but it's doing the job that God has called us to do. And we have a job as Christians, but it's not building a boat. What is the great task that God has given us? Is it not to preach the gospel to the nations? Isn't the ark today the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul says that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the gospel message, that simple message that God our Creator, despite our sin, sent His own Son to die for us on the cross, so that by simply putting our trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven and restored. Or in a sense, in other words, Christ is the ark. Jesus is the ark that we have to enter into and be saved. And so our task is to build the ark by telling the gospel message everywhere we can and as, to many as people as we can and as a persuasive and winsome and humble way as we can, but to go out there and proclaim the message of salvation to the world. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all peoples as a testimony to all nations. And then, what does he say? The end will come. So it's interesting. Jesus said the gospel is first preached, then the end will come. So, verse 14, 2 Peter. Dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Are you at peace with God today? Have you come into the ark? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you come to the realization like this guy that I'm corresponding with in prison that we can't fix it and solve it on our own, that we need a supernatural recreation of the heart through Christ's power? There has to be a supernatural intervention of God to save us. Have we turned to Jesus as Savior and Lord? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would search our hearts, that you would look inside of us and you would speak to us. God, I pray for every Christian here that we would just be uh, renewed in our faith and that we would see the coming judgment, that you would show us, Lord, the, the coming wrath of God. And you would also show us the kingdom of heaven that's coming.
that, Lord, You would help us to see the streets of gold with the eyes of faith, that You would help us to see the joy of believers worshiping around the throne of the risen Christ. Lord, that You would help us to long for eternal life with You and that that hope of the coming judgment and salvation would propel us forward. Lord, propel us forward in faith to keep living for You even when we stumble at times. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here who has questions, who has doubts, for whom they are still working through issues and and objections in their mind. And Lord, I I just know that You can answer those questions. So I pray that, that God, You would answer those questions in Your time that you would show yourself real to those people in their time. I pray specifically, God, this week, that you would bring some chilling supernatural circumstances and coincidences, quote-unquote, into people's lives. That they would see you are the real God, that you are awesome and can do anything. And so, Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We come now to the communion table. The celebration of Jesus' death for us on the cross. Noah built an ark out of cypress wood. Jesus built an ark out of cross wood. And it's through the cross of Jesus that we're saved. And so this meal is a celebration and commemoration of what Christ has done for us. This bread that we eat is a, a memorial, a reminder that Jesus' body was broken on the cross. This cup that we drink is a reminder that Jesus' blood was shed on the cross. And by eating these elements together, what we're saying publicly is we're, we're, we're remembering Christ's work for us and saying that we are trusting in that. By eating it, it's kind of like symbolizing our faith, that we're, we're taking in by faith what Christ has done for us. So this table is open to anybody here who knows Christ because that's what the symbolism means. If you know Christ and you're a follower of His, uh, you're welcome to eat here at table.